Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. On the program today, a special focus on the Copenhagen meetings to combat climate change. We'll be having a conversation with Joel Covell. He is the author of The Enemy of Nature and also a discussion with Dale Marshall, who is the climate change policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. Also, we'll have a chat with Malalai Joya, who is a Afghan member of parliament who is on a cross-country tour promoting her book. Plus, the alert headlines and music is the Weapon with Mitch Padalik. And these are the alert headlines for November 19th, 2009. World leaders have declared there will be no binding deal on climate change until 2010. U.S. President Barack Obama and other world leaders have conceded that a binding deal to combat climate change won't be reached until at least next year. Asia-Pacific leaders have backed a proposal to only reach an interim political agreement at next month's climate talks in Copenhagen, while postponing contentious decisions on emission targets, financing, and technology transfer until sometime in 2010. The delay has frustrated those who feel time is running out to prevent calamitous levels of climate change. Rajendra Pachuri, the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, described the compromise deal as a severe disappointment. He said the scientific consensus on global warming demands immediate action, not stalling tactics. Steelworkers at Vale Inco Nickel Mine in Sudbury and Voise Bay have been on strike since July. After rejecting contracts con calling for deep concessions, members of the United Steelworkers find themselves in the midst of one of their largest battles in their history. More than three years ago, Inco, Canada's biggest nickel mining and processing company, was bought by the Brazil-based CVRD and renamed Vale Inco. Vale Inco is now the second largest mining company in the world. At the time of this corporate takeover, Vale Inco signed a confidential agreement with Prime Minister Stephen Harper and his cabinet ministers. This agreement was held up by Prime Minister Harper as a guarantee to workers and union representatives that they would not face cutbacks or concessions. However, Vale Inco has refused to negotiate in good faith and has used the recession to demand concessions from the workers. The number of Canadians needing aid from food banks swelled in March to almost 800,000, an increase of almost 120,000 from the same month of the previous year. Figures released by Food Banks Canada showed this as a 7.6% increase, the largest since 1997. The recession was seen as the primary culprit for the rise in food bank reliance. The report also said Alberta had the highest increase of food bank usage, with 61% more Albertans relying on assistance compared to last year. The European Union has condemned Palestinian plans to seek immediate recognition as an independent state. The EU has instead called for a resumption of Middle East peace negotiations with Israel. Palestinian negotiators last week threatened to walk away from peace negotiations with Israel, which have become bogged down over Israel's refusal to stop building settlements on Palestinian territory. The move comes as Israel authorized the construction of 900 new housing units in annexed East Jerusalem. The United States is pressing the Jewish state to halt its settlement activity as it tries to bring Israel and the Palestinians back to the negotiation table.
The international community has repeatedly criticized Israel for building on occupied Palestinian lands, which Israel seized in 1967. The United States government has announced that Omar Khadr will be tried by a military commission in the United States. Khadr is a Canadian citizen accused of killing an American soldier in Afghanistan in 2002. He is the only foreign national still being held at Guantanamo Bay Prison. Canada's Supreme Court ordered Ottawa to ask for Khadr's return after finding that Canadian officials who colluded with the U.S. breached his constitutional right not to be treated in a cruel and unusual manner. The Harper government has applauded the decision to try Qatar in the United States. In Ottawa, opposition MPs denounced the Harper government's indifference to the plight of Canadians suffering human rights abuses. About 200 people rallied in Churchill Square in downtown Edmonton to urge the Canadian government to bring Qatar back to Canada. United States Defense Secretary Robert Gates has blocked the further release of any photographs depicting the abuse or torture of foreign prisoners, saying their release would endanger American soldiers and the war on terror. Federal courts have repeatedly rejected the government's arguments to block the release of the photographs, but Congress voted last month to give Gates new powers to keep them private. The United Nations claims that gold continues to be smuggled out of the Democratic Republic of Congo despite sanctions. The coordinator of the UN arms embargo, Dino Matani, told the BBC around 40 tons of gold continues to be taken out of the country each year. He said most of the profits from the illegal gold trade are being used to fund armed rebel groups in the country, especially the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Rwanda. Mr. Matani mentioned a recent Congolese Senate report that estimated the illegal trade is worth 1.24 billion U.S. dollars per year. Most of the gold is believed to be shipped to Dubai via Uganda. And those are the alert headlines for November 19, 2009. And now, around the left from November 19th to 29th. On November 29th, CBC Manitoba's managing editor, Cecil Rosner, will speak at the Millennium Public Library in Winnipeg. Rosner has 30 years' experience in journalism and is the author of Behind the Headlines, A History of Investigative Journalism in Canada. The lecture begins at 2 p.m. In light of threats to civic freedoms, a public forum on housing, homelessness, and the 2010 Olympics will be held on November 23rd at the Fletcher Challenge Theatre at SFU Harbour Centre in Vancouver. The panel includes community activist groups, former City of Vancouver employees, and members of the local independent media. The forum begins at 7 p.m. The first-ever Canadian Labour International Film Festival will be held November 22nd to 28th in Toronto and November 28th and 29th across Canada. The films document workers and the conditions under which they live, work, fight, and succeed in their daily lives. The goal of this festival is not only to screen films, but to encourage workers to make their own to be screened at this and other festivals around the world. On November 21st, Canadians concerned about Sri Lanka are asked to form a circle of hope around the consulate in Toronto. The 21st marks the 180th day after the government of Sri Lanka pledged that refugees from the Tamil conflict would be resettled within 180 days. Yet tens of thousands of Tamil families are languishing in camps with no sign of repatriation. Meet at the Sri Lankan consulate at 12.30 p.m. 
The Canadian Union of Public Employees and the Council of Canadians are sponsoring a celebration of Water Watch's 10th anniversary. From November 27th to 29th in Ottawa, join community leaders and activists from across the country to learn about the successes of defending water from corporate exploitation and to strategize how to strengthen the movement to keep water public and plan for another decade of winning activism. The event is free and is held at the Marriott Hotel on Kent Street. November 25th is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. During the evening of the 25th, join members of the Women's Movement in Toronto to resist and protest the violence against women that is the result of Canada's immigration system. This event is held at the Innes Town Hall in Toronto and will include speakers, theatre, poetry and music. It begins at 6.30pm. And that was Around the Left for November 19th to November 29th. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm going to speak now with Dale Marshall. He is the climate change policy analyst of the David Suzuki Foundation. As a climate change expert at the David Suzuki Foundation, you were present at the Barcelona meetings 10 days ago where the final negotiations took place before the UN climate change meetings next month in Copenhagen. What happened at those meetings in Barcelona? Well, there was unfortunately very little progress in terms of the actual negotiations. Uh, a few of the smaller elements moved forward, but a lot of the big issues, like what kinds of um, emission reduction targets the industrialized countries are going to take on and what kind of financing will be put on the table for poorer countries, um, were not resolved. And the lack of progress really did lead to um, some some conflict. The the Africa group uh, walked out of a negotiation under the Kyoto Protocol because because there was so little progress um, that they said they they really did need to see what um, the rich industrialized countries would be uh, taking on in terms of commitments to reduce their own global warming pollution. Well, it now seems almost certain that Copenhagen will not produce much binding agreement from those countries you mentioned. Um, what torpedoed a global action plan to replace the Kyoto Protocol? Well, first of all, I think it's premature to say that we won't get anything. Um, that's certainly what the, uh, the Canadian government is saying, uh, that, and I think they're downplaying expectations quite a bit. Uh, at the, just as an example, in the, at the APEC summit this weekend, we had the Prime Minister of Denmark who was there, and he said, we want a full binding agreement in Copenhagen. And, uh, and that in- means that uh, commitments around targets and commitments around financing um, should be part of that agreement. And what happened was um, Prime Minister Harper spun that as, Oh, we're not going to get the full uh, treaty that we need, so we, sh- you know, we we shouldn't expect targets. Um, and I think so. I think there's there's some spin going on on behalf of the Canadian government. Um, today, we we saw um, a communicate coming out of of the uh, the bilateral between President Obama and President Hu of China, um, again saying that they do want to have. Um, commitments on the table in Copenhagen. 
Whether it'll be a full legally binding treaty remains to be seen, but um, um, but there is still hope in my mind, and clearly there are leaders who are pushing for this, for there to be uh, an agreement to have um, the really big elements spelled out so that we do have a global regime. In terms of who's I mean, who is obstructing that progress? I mean, there are a number of countries that are really holding back, and I would say that Canada is amongst them. Um, might even be leading the charge in, in terms of the Kyoto Protocol. Um, there was never, there was ne- the Kyoto Protocol was not intended to expire. In fact, we have agreed twice, the world has agreed twice that the Kyoto Protocol would be amended and would continue past 2012, but the Canadian... Um, government uh, wants to uh, get rid of it because, well, first of all, it, we're not going to meet our commitments under the first phase of the Kyoto Protocol, and they don't think that our targets should be binding. What role do you think that uh, the U.S. Senate failing to pass any carbon, ca- carbon capping legislation has played in uh, blocking um, or in, in setting this atmosphere of uh, not binding agreements at Copenhagen? I, I think it's been it's been a pretty major um, um, block on progress. I would say um, the U.S. administration uh, is definitely holding back because it doesn't want to get out in front of what Congress will deliver. Um, that said, uh, the administration, the, the President Obama and the White House, do have the ability to sign on to something, even though the Senate. Um, I should say Congress in total haven't come up with the, you know, the, the exact final bill, and it doesn't look like they will before the Copenhagen Agreement. If, if the president has a fit reasonably good idea of what that piece of legislation will look like, he knows what he can deliver in terms of other, because he, he has some powers through the Environmental Protection Agency that go beyond what Congress can deliver. Um, there definitely is the possibility for the U.S. to put um, some targets and some financing on the table in Copenhagen. No doubt the reason that we haven't seen a lot of that is because there isn't clarity in Congress right now, and that has impeded progress as well. Dale Marshall, tell us how important is Copenhagen? You've expressed that you still hold hope that some binding agreements will be reached. Well, it's it's the deadline. Um, the world agreed two years ago in Bali that they were going to negotiate a global regime to tackle climate change. And in, climate change is one of those issues that has to be tackled globally. Everybody has to do their fair share. Um, and the deadline for coming to that agreement was this meeting in Copenhagen happening next month. Um, so it's to me it's it's discouraging to... Um, to hear Prime Minister Harper playing down the importance of the meeting uh, because Canada signed on to that deadline two years ago. Um, um, So it remains a very important meeting. It remains the deadline. Um, And to me, it's it's absolutely still possible for us to have in hand the, the kind of agreement that can lead to actually tackling this issue. Will every... I be dotted and every T be crossed after Copenhagen? Certainly not. There are there will be details that will have to be fleshed out um, more in 2010. 
um, but having uh, the f- a fair and ambitious and binding treaty um, coming out of Copenhagen, w- like I said, with some details to be finalized, is still possible. Um, and it's something that the world committed to. And what needs to happen to make that possible, especially in light of the resistance from Canadian leadership federally? Well, I mean, it is about leadership. I mean, that is what's missing. Um, there's no, there, you know, yes, time is short, and it takes time to, to, to write out legal text, and it takes time to come to agreement on certain things. But at the end of the day, this is a failure of leadership if uh, Copenhagen fails to deliver on what, it, what, what we all committed to delivering. Um, it's, uh, I mean, there's no other way around it. It's, it's essentially political will not being there. Um, we have good options on the table. Um, we know what's needed in terms of, uh, in terms of having deeper emission reductions in our global warming pollution from, from, from the industrialized countries. We know that developing countries have to start taking actions to curb their own emissions. We know there has to be adaptation funds on the table so that especially the poorest, but all the whole developing world can adapt to the changes that are happening. These things we've known for two, for two years now, the framework has been there, and the options are still on the table. And it's just a matter of, um, frankly, countries like Canada and a handful of others really stepping up and saying that, they need, that, um, that this needs to happen. And, for, and it, it, does, it does come back to Canadian citizens. I mean, if, if we had um, thousands of people calling into the Prime Minister's office every day saying, let's get serious with climate change, let's sign that deal, um, and let's move forward, uh, it would happen. Uh, and so at the end of the day, it really is about Canadians being engaged and mobilized on this issue over the course of the next month. One last question for Adele Marshall. What is your answer to those who say, in these economic times, we can't afford to pursue these environmental goals? Well, I mean, it's, it's completely... Uh, I'd put that completely on its head and say, we can't afford to not move forward. I mean, we're, it's not just about saving the planet, which is important enough, but it's also losing out on opportunities. Um, we, other countries that are reducing emissions are also creating incredible economic opportunities. Uh, you, look at, you look at the 160,000 people that are employed in Germany uh, building wind turbines. Um, those are the kinds of opportunities that Canada is not taking advantage of. And at the same time, the cost of climate change continue to rise. Um, the International Energy Agency said that every year that we delay climate change, um, we're giving up on 500, it's costing us $500 billion, half a trillion dollars for every year that we delay action. Um, and that's because of the impacts of climate change, but it's also because of the lost opportunities in the clean energy sector. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that it actually makes sense, both economically and environmentally, to be on the same page with the leaders in the world and to be moving forward on this issue. Well, Dale Marshall, climate change policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation, thank you for joining us on Alert Radio. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you for your interest. Thank you.
like to remind alert listeners to check out Canadian Dimension's special issue on Copenhagen. There are articles by Joel Covell, but also Danny Harvey, uh, the director of the World Wildlife Fund Climate Change, Keith Stewart, UK climate change researcher and author Larry Lohman, and executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network, Tom Goldtooth. Joel Covell is a leading authority on the political economy of climate change. His book, The Enemy of Nature, is widely regarded as a classic in the field. Joel wrote the cover article in the November-December special Copenhagen issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. We reached him in New York City. Welcome to Alert Radio. Welcome back to Alert Radio, yeah, Joel Covell. Hey, well, it's a pleasure. Uh, have a special place in my heart for Winnipeg. Well, thank you for joining us. Here we are at the University of Manitoba radio station. You titled your Canadian Dimension article, End Times in Copenhagen. You, yeah. start, you start the article by asserting that the Kyoto Agreement has produced no demonstrable reduction in emissions and that it would be disastrous if Copenhagen went the same way. Right. Well, recent news from Stephen Harper, we understand there will be no agreement in Copenhagen right. to set targets beyond 2012. Your response? Well, I, I uh, <clears throat> didn't actually know that would happen when I wrote the article for Canadian Dimension. Um, very, one wouldn't be surprised, but you know, it just hadn't happened. When I meant end times, I felt that Copenhagen, in one way or another, would uh, signal, uh, you know, the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end or some something with, with an end in it to. Uh, tell us that the uh, level of, of contradiction, the level of uh, seriousness, uh, the overall political economic level of pertaining to climate change had now uh, has now reached a, a, a massively critical stage. Uh, even if they were going to be going through with it, uh, it was clear to me, and I'm, I'm certainly not alone here, although. I represent but one school of thought on the subject, but it was it was clear that uh, Copenhagen will uh, more or less expose the regime that began with the Kyoto Accords in 1997 um, and will expire in 2012. And Copenhagen was the time and place for uh, after a series of UN meetings that Kyoto was going to be retooled. Uh, son of Kyoto was going to be unleashed onto the world and all the bugs would be taken out of the original cap-and-trade agreements and so forth. And, of course, there have been huge numbers of meetings in between, and whether in Bali or Poznan, Poland, uh, elsewhere, uh, all of which leading up to this massive you know, change in the, in the regime of, of trading and controlling uh, carbon. But Myself and others of like-minded view have argued all along that the basic approach is so flawed, both in, in terms of theory, but more basically in terms of the kinds of material interests that are involved, that all Copenhagen was going to do was to expose the utter bankruptcy of the system. And, of course, that's uh, happened even sooner than we thought, because the news increasingly, whether from Harper or Obama or elsewhere, is that there's not going to be any agreement on Copenhagen. I mean, there are people who believe that maybe the system can retrieve its, itself, or pull itself together at the last minute, but 
I'm not one of them. Well, I'd like to ask you, as an eco-socialist, and you can perhaps explain that, your position is that the capitalist system is the basic cause of climate change, and thus none of the devices being talked about, like cap-and-trade or taxing pollution, offer a sustainable solution to halting climate change. So tell us how, bottom line, capitalism is the enemy of nature, the title of your book, and why these solutions won't work. Well, um, first of all, because I mean, the... The operational problem is that uh, the people who are controlling this process from Kyoto through Copenhagen are the capitalists. It's a it's a uh, lock, stock, and barrel approach run by the dominant economic interests. It's the classical, you know, tale of uh, having the fox take care of the chicken coop. Uh, if if one believes as I do, and as increasing numbers of people do, that it is the capitalist system that's responsible for this, and we'll get into that in a moment, then there's no surer way to prescribe um, uh, disaster than to let these capitalists continue to devise the means of getting themselves out of the system. And, and in my view, they don't really want to get themselves out of the system. They just want to make more money. And the Copenhagen and Kyoto Accords are ways of creating new markets uh, wherein the control of atmospheric carbon is linked to the issuing of uh, (coughs) government permits, uh, which are basically new commodities in which people can trade. And that opens a Pandora's box of um, endless, you know, contradictions, corruptions, irrationalities, unpredictabilities, and the like. And... um, uh, it's been very widely understood now that that simply cannot work. And my view of the situation is a very radical one. I, I think the capitalists know that it cannot work because if it did work, it would, would be the end of their system. And the, the point here is that the reason that capitalism is the uh, operative or efficient cause of the matter is that capitalism is the reigning economic system and model whose basic modality is is to grow recklessly without any internal control over that growth process. And a continual expansion of the economic product is the be-all and end-all, alpha and omega, whatever you want to call it, of the capitalist system. And that uh, being played out on a finite planet with a finite atmosphere is eventually going to result in the breakdown of the ecological integrity of not just the atmosphere, but the entire ecosphere. That is to say, climate change is no doubt (coughs) spectacular, perhaps the most spectacular part of this problem, but it's by no means the only part of this problem. There's an entire ecological crisis that has resulted from the fact that, very simply put, the capitalist system is just overloaded the ecosphere with its economic activity and exceeded the buffering capacity of the planet. Uh, there are many measures of this, one of which is uh, the ec- ecological footprint, which is the, the degree to which uh, industrial civilization exceeds or does not exceed the capacity of the earth to regenerate itself, that is to say, uh, to engage in some kind of equilibrium. And we're now up to the point where the 
the world industrial system is producing such that it's exceeding the capacity of the Earth to recuperate by a factor of 30%. In other words, it's producing 30% more than can be uh, buffered or controlled by the built-in you know, uh, cybernetics mechanisms of the ecosphere. And that's being played out in these immense transformations of which climate change is simply most spectacular. This is Alert Radio. We're speaking to Joel Covell about the upcoming Copenhagen meetings. I would like you to give our listeners an explanation of eco-socialism. Right. You've explained to us how capitalism won't work to save, to the, save the environment, but now tell our listeners across the country how eco-socialism can work to save the environment. Well, <laughs> eco-socialism is not a blueprint and it's not a detail worked out mechanism of any sort. What it is is a commitment to... Uh, seek ecological integrity, which is to say to seek a harmonious relationship between humanity and nature uh, through the only way that that is feasible, which is to overcome the capitalist system. And that means a really fundamental transformation of society from the bottom up. I think the, the key thing here is that we have to learn to realize that we are now approaching something that has been building for thousands of years or hundreds of years or decades, but it's coming to a head, and it is indeed the you know, put up or shut up uh, moment of civilization. Either you, either you change this uh, system by means of which the earth is being ravaged, or you're going to go under. And uh, climate change is one way of doing it. If this is not corrected by the end of the century, we'll have, uh, you know, positive feedback loops, so this best climate science says, which will, which will result in a growth of average temperature about four to seven degrees Celsius, which is completely incompatible with any form of civilization, uh, such as we've known it. Hundreds of millions of people will be displaced. There will be endless uh, catastrophes, which are impossible to predict, except that they will be proliferating. And the point about eco-socialism is a, a thought through effort to see beyond that, and, and one feature of that is that the capitalist system is predicated on endless growth and, and is predicated on the production for profit and the like, and, and the value term and the profit rules over, over the mere usefulness of items, and, and a socialist economy has to, and a socialist society has to be redesigned from the bottom up so that people control their own production so that production is not controlled by the class of capitalists. And if people control their own production in a democratic way, uh, they will also be able to rationally limit their consumption of the Earth's commodities, Earth's rather resources, and, uh, and at the same time uh, uh, devise the proper means of, of redoing our relationship to the earth, and which is basically in this case means renewable energy. And the fundamental point of eco-socialism, insofar as climate is concerned, is, is to say simply keep the oil in the soil, keep the carbon out of the atmosphere. It's not to get engage in these endless tricks of cap and trade or, or in the endless uh, technological fixes, some of which are uh, frankly preposterous, but it's to you know rethink what society is all about so that we can indeed live more frugally and more rationally upon the earth, and I think more happily. But the only way we can do that is if we control our own production, and if we have a uh, free association of producers, as Marx once said, 
that is to say, human freedom in a productive environment, then we will not have to be caught up in this cycle of endless expansion and consumption. And that's, to me, the only rational way out of this dilemma. I'm not even sure it's going to work because we may be too far gone, but it's certainly, in my view, the only approach to take about it. Well, the special Canadian dimension issue on Copenhagen is now in the newsstands yeah. for the regular price of six ninety five. Of course, Joel Covell will direct our listeners to your article, End Times in Copenhagen, and right. your book, The Enemy of Nature. Thank you for joining us today on Alert Radio. Okay, it's a great pleasure, always. Thank you. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. Malale Joya is the youngest person ever elected to the Afghanistan parliament. She has been described as the bravest woman in Afghanistan by the BBC. She has survived assassination attempts for her criticism of the drug lords and warlords who control Afghanistan politics. Malale Joya, welcome to Alert Radio. Last night, you spoke in front of over 200 people at the University of Winnipeg. And the impression that Canadian citizens have is that our soldiers are in Afghanistan to protect the rights of women. But last night, I heard you compare the life of a woman to a bird. And you said that the situation is getting worse day by day for women in Afghanistan. For example, uh, this is fashionable for the media. Every crime happening, they say Taliban did. While they are not only Taliban, these warlords who are in power in Canada government also support them. For example, a member of parliament, his name is Haji Painda, has son uh, with two other warlords rape a young girl in Sarapul province, 14 years old Bashira. Then he changed the age of his son, less than 18, that do not be punished, and he's free. That's why I said last night that killing a woman in Afghanistan that much easy like killing a bird. So it's better leave us alone. They let us a little bit breath in peace, then we know what to do with our destiny. Well, the audience last night was very interested in what would happen if you were left alone and if all the soldiers were to leave tomorrow. You said tomorrow's too late, it should be today. Yeah. People want to know what would happen in Afghanistan if all the occupying forces are withdrawn. You know, now my people are scratched between two powerful enemies. From the sky, occupation forces bombing, killing civilians under the name of Taliban. Canada being part of NATO followed the strong policy. In the ground, warlord Taliban together now negotiate with each other, continue to their fascism. So with the withdrawal of one enemy, it's much easier to fight one enemy instead of two. But these troops themselves, they are victim of the wrong policy of their government. When I say enemy, I mean that their government, because send them for bad cause, for war. Democracy never come by barrel of gun by cluster bomb. Maybe one question come in your mind, why I become elected if there is not democracy? As from my position also, they misuse. And uh, the reason I found we in the parliament because um, um, I had strong support of my people after 2003 that I stand up against the warlord. I became famous not only in my country for great people, justice-loving people around the world. As a famous saying, it's not important who is voting, it's important who is counting. But for few Democrats, they allow to be in the parliament for a showcase of democracy, this uh, so-called democracy, as we are in minority in the parliament. But 
you said the mainstream media never talks about this. One of the things was the non-violent acts of resistance from the Afghan people, demonstrations. Can you talk about that in our remaining minute? Yeah, of course, that um, uh, resistance of my people is a big hope for the future of Afghanistan. Also, as always, I'm saying we lost almost everything this 30 years war, but we gained one positive thing, which is political knowledge of the people improved a lot. Even children of Afghanistan, for me today, like hero, like children of Palestine, they know about the occupation and they... They don't like war, and they fed up from this situation. All most people of my country, for example, you can see on my web page that after the war crime in Farah province, that these occupation forces did bombing. Um, more than 150 civilians has been killed uh, in Farah province on May. It was the worst massacre after 9/11, and most of the victim was women and children. Even they used white phosphorus cluster bomb, and um, one one student of the university, and one day he lost. 19 members of his family and when the student uh, in Kabul they uh, heard about that they belong to different provinces all they come out and they did demonstration to get at more than thousand students but no media show that to the people around the world this is resistance of my people this is national unity and um, and also that in Helmand recently people did demonstration because innocent civilians nine people in one day has been called and uh, they, this demonstration day by day getting more that's why my message to you is that to great people of Canada, not to your government, join your hands with us, especially educationally, support my people. As always, I'm saying that education is a key toward emancipation, and this truth itself is alternative. If you know, I'm sure you will not sit silent. Support us, as always, I'm saying, I don't fear death. I fear political silence against injustice. Please don't be silenced. Malale Joya, we thank you for your courage. Your book is called A Woman Among Warlords, The Extraordinary Story of an Afghan Who Dared to Raise Her Voice. There is also uh, a documentary called The Enemies of Happiness that our listeners can uh, take in. And finally, you have your website, www.malalejoya.com, where people can uh, follow your progress. We wish you safety, and um, thank you very much for joining us here on Alert Radio. Thank you. At the end, let me tell you now, all I said about sadness and this shocking news. But believe me, in the world of hopelessness, there's lots of hopes. As always, I'm saying they are able to destroy all of the flowers, but they never can stop the spring. Hello, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon, and this week I decided that we should listen to a few really traditional Canadian folk songs. One of the things is that, that politics has always been part of Canadian life, and singing about politics has always been part of Canadian life, so there's nothing new in terms of the folk singer singing about the current politics of the day. So, directly to you, from the, through the modern technique of radio, here's a song from 1837, Song of Exile, a song of rebellion, Un Canadien Errante. Un Canadien Errante, banni de ses foyers, Un Canadien Errante, banni de ses foyers, Parcourait en pleurant 
de pays étrangers, parcourait en pleurant des pays étrangers. Un jour triste et pensif, assis au bord des flots, un jour triste et pensif, assis au bord des flots, au courant fugitif, il adressa ces mots. Au courant fugitif, il adressa ces mots. Si tu vois mon pays, mon pays malheureux, si tu vois mon pays, mon pays malheureux, va dire à mes amis que je me souviens d'eux. Va dire à mes amis que je me souviens d'eux. Au jour si plein d'appât, vous êtes disparus. Au jour si plein d'appât, vous êtes disparus. Et ma patrie, hélas, je ne le verrai plus. Et ma patrie, hélas, je ne le verrai plus. Non, mais en expirant, Oh mon cher Canada, non mais en expirant, oh mon cher Canada, mon regard languissant vers toi se portera, mon regard languissant vers toi se portera. That was Alan Mills with Un Canadien Errant a song from the 1837 Rebellion. Alan Mills, of course, was a was an amazing collector and singer of traditional songs and of, of songs of, of our times and his times. He was around at the time when, when Newfoundland came into Confederation, but he always managed to keep this song going, and a few times I actually saw him sing this in concert. Here is Alan Mills with Newfoundland's anti-Confederation song. Hooray for our own native isle Newfoundland Not a stranger shall hold one inch of its strand Her face turns to Britain, her back to the Gulf Come near at your peril, Canadian wolf Ye brave Newfoundlanders who plough the salt sea With hearts like the eagle, so bold and so free The time is at hand when you'll all have to say If Confederation will carry the day Cheap tea and molasses they say they will give All taxes take off that the poor man may live Cheap nails and cheap lumber are coffins to make And homespun to mend our old clothes when they break If they take off the taxes how then will they meet The heavy expense on the country's upkeep Just give them the chance to get us in the scrape And they'll chain us like slaves with pen, ink and red tape would you barter the right that your fathers have won, your freedom transmitted from father to son, for a few thousand dollars of Canadian gold? Don't let it be said that your birthright was sold. 
So hooray for our own native Isle Newfoundland. Not a stranger shall hold one inch of its strand. Her face turns to Britain, her back to the Gulf. Come near at your peril, Canadian wolf. That was Alan Mills with Newfoundland's anti-confederation song. For our last song on today's show, here is Bruce Brackney, Haywire Brack, a member of the Rose Tattoo, living out there in Victoria, British Columbia, living right smack dab next to a railway track. And uh, here he is singing the Kettle Valley Line. I always ride upon the roof on the Kettle Valley Line. I always ride upon the roof on the Kettle Valley Line. I always ride upon the roof. I could ride inside, but what's the use? I always ride upon the roof on the Kettle Valley Line. I order my meal through the ventilator on the Kettle Valley Line. Order my meal through the ventilator on the Kettle Valley line. I order my meal through the ventilator. Taste the same, save step in the waiter. I order my meal through the ventilator on the Kettle Valley line. I order my sandwich from the cook on the Kettle Valley line. I order my sandwich from the cook on the Kettle Valley line. I order my sandwich from the cook. Cost two dollars, he's a dirty crook. I order my sandwich from the cook on the Kettle Valley line. Those railroad bulls were gentlemen on the Kettle Valley line. Railroad bulls were gentlemen on the Kettle Valley Line. Those railroad bulls were gentlemen, we'll never see their like again. Ah, the railroad bulls were gentlemen on the Kettle Valley Line. Brackney singing the Kettle Valley Line, a song from the Depression. And that's it for this week, folks. See you next week. And 
that is Alert Radio for November 19th, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes, and we hope that you'll tune in next week. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com. Thank you.